Thanks for joining me. I am Silanen, the Queen Trell. Queen Trell, a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed through personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, and a cultivation of life's pleasures. Welcome. Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am super excited this week because coming right up is going to be an In the Company of Friends talk with Ken Kramer. And although he's my former cousin-in-law, I still consider him my cousin. And I am so inspired by him. He's one of the strongest, smartest people that I know. But if that's not enough, he's super talented as well. He's an amazing cook. We'll get into some of his recipes and that sort of thing. I mean, everything that he makes is out of this world. And of course, he's also a foodie. But most surprisingly, maybe, is that he embarked on this weight loss journey last year, losing 45 pounds for health reasons. And he is looking fire. Oh my God, I am so jealous and I am so proud of him. It's an amazing accomplishment. All this while decorating his home in his favorite mid-century style. He's an amateur interior decorator and an amazing photographer. He's also a traveler. He's a wanderer of the American landscape uh, and uses his photography skills to document the places that he goes to in really nostalgic manner that evokes the heart of these places or the subjects of his photography and really tells a great story. And since we're on the subject of travel, he is a car aficionado. That's his favorite way of traveling. He's also part of a car club, and he actually names his cars. I've never named one of my cars, and I always think it's so cool to hear the names that people give their cars and how they came about those names. There's always great stories associated with them. So those are some of the amazing things that this Navy vet does that becomes all the more inspiring when you find out that he is 30 years HIV positive. Um, If you listen to episode 15, when I talked about my time working in healthcare with AIDS patients, they had gone past the HIV positive stage. You'll understand my concern when I learned about that diagnosis. So he is a walking miracle to me that I am just so thankful for. And he's also a huge resource and support to the gay community and those who find themselves having to navigate the impacts of a positive diagnosis of this type. And the lessons that he learned, um, really his attitude more than anything can be extrapolated in a positive way to help those who are navigating other diagnoses that are also scary. I think what makes it all the more remarkable is a couple of serious surgeries that he's had. He's basically Roboman and Superman at the same time. That's been most evident in the past six months or so. In November, he went in for an MRI to find out why he was having some balance issues. 
And they thought it was lumbar related, but in fact, he had a brain tumor. So in December, he had surgery to have the majority of that tumor removed. And he is currently in the healing stages, not allowing any of this medical history to stop him from living a meaningful, fulfilling life. And that's where, you know, so much of that inspiration comes from and so much of my respect for him comes from. He's he's just unstoppable. You'll hear in this episode his slurred speech pattern, which is a temporary result of the surgery that he recently underwent. He just seems to conquer these life-changing events as though they're just minor setbacks with an indefatigable positiveness and panache and just this understated ease that seems to be his trademark, as well as his luxury crafted old fashioned cocktails that he is a master of making, which you may have been lucky enough to have tried. So without further ado, please join us in a conversation with Ken Kramer. Ken I am so excited and there is so much to talk about. I don't even know where to start, but I think we'll start with some of your recent mid-century finds. You sent me some really awesome photos of some decorating that you've been doing lately. Tell me about your fascination with historical architecture and, of course, your fascination specifically with mid-century designs. Well, let me start off by saying I was a huge fan of Mad Men when it was on. And even <laughs> though um, Daddy and Don's house was fairly traditional, Don's office was just to die for. His corner office there with some wall art and a nice piece of furniture, a nice desk, streamlined, um, cut to the chase of thinking that, okay, I inherited my aunt's Haywood Wakefield dining room table, the one that's under the Sputnik. It's not overwrought, clean lines, good function because that table not only has two leaves in the middle, but it has drop leaves at each end. And so it can be quite a few different sizes, but it's not ostentatious. It's just good, clean design. And when it dawned on me that that table was probably bought in the mid-1950s and learning my house when I bought it, it was built in 1957, it just seemed a natural fit. And given the opportunity to uh, bring in some decor of some time, I have a theme already built in, sort of, so to speak, in that it's a mid-century. Considering that most of the movies shot back then were black and white and you had no sense of color, um, it was actually a very colorful time in design because it was using a lot of man-made materials in addition to wood, for example, to get you all kinds of patterns and colors and designs and things like that. And it's not garish or overdone, but it's very clean and simplistic and, and modern. Um, and that's what I go for. I don't go for traditional styles or a lot of wood uh, work or anything like that. But if it's something that's clean and uncluttered, it'll fit right in. And I have a a wide variety of pieces, but, you know, if I see something in an art store that will fit into the theme of my house, I still buy it. Yeah, and that period of design that you're describing has always had this 
nostalgic feel to it because of course it's older, but it was a very exuberant design period. I mean, you see it in vehicles, you see it in the fixtures, and not only was it exuberant and futuristic, but it did have all of those clean lines to it that just makes you really appreciate it so much. Right. So the Sputnik lamp. The Sputnik lamp has to do with the satellite that was first shot into orbit by the Russians in 1957. <laughs> but it was about the size of a basketball with four antennas on it. But anyway, a Sputnik lamp is derived from the Sputnik satellite in that it can be round and it can have protrusions off the side to represent the antenna. Um, it does not have to be shaped on a, like in a conical sense, like the um, this actual Sputnik was, but it's made to evoke the image of the Sputnik satellite rather than actually be a copy or a replica of it. So there's many, many styles of Sputnik lamps, but they all tend to have a center, a round center, and that they have arms radiating from the center outward. So it kind of looks like a starburst in some respects, but it's just something that gives off a very mid-century vibe. And I was especially drawn to it because this house that I lived in was built in 1957 as well. So it seemed like a natural fit. And it looks beautiful above your dining room table. Yeah. So your love of everything mid-century actually extends to automobiles and film and TV, too. And all of your cars have names. What are some of the your favorite <laughs> rides and why and what were their names? And how did they well, get them? <laughs> I own a 1996 Cadillac as my toy. And uh, because she is gold and tan inside, it just... It struck me as Muriel would be a good name for something that was kind of kind of colored like a cigar would be. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's kind of odd, but it just, you know, you went through my mouth and I went, oh, this, this fits. The other car I have is a 2019 Buick, and it was actually an import. It's an Opal from Europe. And, um, and so the navigation has a female voice, and it just, I was racking my brain for a German girl name and all I could come up with is Elky. I love um, Elky. It reminds me of a deer. And I, here I was thinking about Elky Summer. <laughs> yes. Um, other cars. Other cars in, um, yeah. And mid-century. <laughs> uh, the Nero. Um, everybody was suggesting names for my Kia Nero. And of course, you know, Bob De Nero seemed too obvious. Well, my friend Nikki, you know Nikki, um, he suggested, well, why don't you pick out a movie that Robert De Niro was in and then name the car after a character? Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, Travis Pickle? Nah, i got to name a car a girl. Well, the other noteworthy star from Taxi Driver was Jodie Foster, and her character's name was Iris. And so, yeah, De Niro, my Niro was named Iris. Oh, I like that. That was Just a great to idea. Just name my, name my car after a teenage hooker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she took you places, didn't she? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And what are and some of And do you remember, um, mm-hmm. well, that, that was when I came and met you, Cameron, and Sophie in El Paso when Cameron graduated. 
Yes. And Iris kind of saved us a lot of hassle that one day when we wanted to go find dinosaur tracks. Yeah. Uh, we went through Texas. We went into Mexico. Uh, we almost went into Mexico. Ended up in New mm-hmm. Mexico, and the navigation system just kept sending us to all of these different places. Couldn't find it. <laughs> Finally, ended up going through an arch that said Mount Cristo Rey. We ended up walking up this mountain. Mm -hmm. And we thought, what is that up there? Because we could see kind of a very ornate box. And we thought that maybe it's somebody's grave. So we walked up and (laughs) there was a statue, I think, of the Virgin Mary in there. Kept walking. like an icon. Yeah. And it ended up being the Stations of the Cross. And it was kind of like this pilgrimage going around this mountain. And we just talked forever. We never found the dinosaur tracks, but we found Jesus out in the middle of the desert. In the desert, right. Um, So that statue that is at the top of that mount that we hiked up, which you can't see from the base of the mount. You actually have to get... Yeah. Wasn't that amazing? You have to get so close to the top to be able to see this enormous statue uh, that's called Christ the King. And it's very similar, although it is smaller, about half the height of the Christ the Redeemer statue that's in Rio de Janeiro. And both of them were completed on site in the 1930s, and that's where you get kind of the similarities in structural and uh, style of both of right. these renditions of Jesus. The one, because if, if you look at the what the pictures of the one in, in Rio de Janeiro, he's almost Art Deco-ish, or has an Art Deco type of aesthetic to him. Right. Yeah, and so did this one, uh, the Christ the Redeemer in Rio was completed in 1931. It's made of sandstone. And Christ the King in New Mexico was completed in 1939. And that one's made of limestone. So they're both similar styles and awe-inspiring to behold. It's just impressive being underneath the toe of that Jesus. And then he's like, right. he's about 40 feet high. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was pretty cool. Um I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. Uh, 98 feet high. The one in He's Rio. almost 100. The one in Rio, yeah. Yeah, enormous. I think I want to take a trip out there. You know, now that I've seen one that's 40 feet high, almost 100 feet. I mean, that's got to be really impressive. Yes. And I, I think that's one of the man-made structures that can be seen from space. Kind of like the Wall of China, but I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure on that. But yeah, it's a sight to behold. Um, And then we come down, finally come down this mountain. Kind of sad that we didn't find the dinosaur tracks. So I see this guy down at the bottom and I thought, oh, he must work here. So I went up and asked him, hey, we're looking for dinosaur tracks. Do you happen to know where they are? And I showed him the, the GPS and gave him all this information and he said, oh, it's 
down on the wash. He can't miss them. And I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) And then he spun around very naturally and said, which one of those three cars over there is yours? I didn't think anything about it, but I'm like, oh gosh, I don't even know what kind of a car that is. (laughs) And you just said, this is what it is. And it's that middle one. And the guy said, okay. And then he turned around and it said border patrol across the back of his jacket. He wanted to make sure we weren't crossing over the border. (laughs) So your car saved us a lot of hassle that day. But I, I kind of felt like by that point, you had already started to get a little bit of a sense that he wasn't just somebody that worked there. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And the border wall just went right through and out of sight. I mean, it just looked very out of place right there in this beautiful, serene landscape. But yeah. So I do remember that car. So what are some of your favorite films? I know we just talked about a couple of them and shows and why. Why? I always gravitate towards science fiction, good, um, thought-provoking science fiction, not so much action or adventure movies, but things that uh, predict the future or show us what life in the future could be like. Uh, My favorite film of all time is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, it is such a hypnotic and mesmerizing movie for me that as many times as I've seen it over the years and as many different formats of home video that I've owned it on, um, I see something new or something new dawns on me every time I see it. It's, it's a source of constant discovery for me. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things about that film is that Stanley Kubrick had intended to make it primarily a visual, like nonverbal experience. And the idea was that he wanted it to hit viewers like music does, or, you know, like when you take a trip to a museum and you stop to look at a painting and you kind of have that, that more poetic um, inner reaction to what you're seeing Totally, totally all about it. Never mind how prescient it was about how much computers would be a part of our lives. (laughs) So true. So true. So I'm hobbling down the hallway and reading my uh, reading an email at the same time. And so I ended up crashing into something, of course. And I thought I had stepped on a cat. Like it startled me. And I said, that. <laughs> I said, Oh my God, I think I just stepped on one of the cats. And it was actually a box that I had kind of pushed my toes against. And my phone immediately went off. And it was kind of like having this veterinary expert therapist on the phone. who <laughs> said, if you have stepped on your cat, you must go and find your cat very carefully and gently, (laughs) you know, um, investigate if your cat cries or flinches from where you think you stepped on it, maybe you should call the veterinarian. And it was kind of like this very calming voice. And the crazy thing is that voice activated software is that sensitive. And on the one hand, Oh yeah. (laughs) On on the one hand, you're thinking, well, you know, Hal was very, very sensitive to 
human interaction. But at the same time, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And it even gave me a transcription of what it said along with pictures. Uh Uh-huh. It could actually be life-saving, but Hal, of course, was completely the opposite, this murderous computer. He ended up being that way, but he wasn't built that way. He just had a conflicting set of orders that he couldn't figure his way out of. And so he didn't want any witnesses. <laughs> right, right. But back to your point about the modern technology, I mean, as Hal was depicted in 2001 versus what we have now, and we always got to say, hey, Google or Siri or whatever, um, to let the computer know that we're trying to talk to it, he was just conversational. You could talk to his little eye or show him something in a TV screen and he would comment on it or say it was a nice drawing or he, he was, you know, according to the to what he said, he was programmed that way. But that, that was the difference between what we have now and what was depicted in, as being modern and up to date in 2001. But when it was, you know, 33 years in the future. Right. And it was meant to be cynical. I mean, you know, he based it on Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel, and then both uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick wrote a lot of the rest of the film, and they kind of like, I think at some point they decided, let's throw elements of Homer's The Odyssey in there, which is really evident when you watch the film, right? There's all of those, um, so many arcs, of course, then the overarching one where Bowman kind of like... He's a survivor. He's a survivor, but you almost question, like, was that a good thing? Was that a bad thing? Because he ends up kind of being a little bit of a a study animal for these shapeless aliens that are basically godlike. Right. Um, you know, put him through all of these stages of life, right? And then he ends up returning to Earth, reborn as a fetus. Which the overarching thing is that we as humans in the universe are childlike in this exploration. We have only just begun. Yes. It's a deeply philosophical film, I think. And that's probably why every time that you watch it, you get something new out of it. Right. Well, then there was also the revolutionary techniques that were developed by Stanley Kubrick and um, Douglas Trumbull for the special effects. And it was the first honest portrayal or attempt at a portrayal of like walking through space where you didn't have any sounds um, except the sound of your own breathing inside your suit. Yeah, he used a lot of different techniques. And in fact, because he wanted it to be as realistic as possible, he ended up hiring a company that had been doing graphics and, and film for NASA. Yeah. So there was uh, that consultation there. But then, like, when you take a look at it, you see things that are very clean. It's all very clean-lined and aesthetically pleasing. A lot of straight lines that give it that quality. And then also, every scene had symmetry to it, which gave it kind of that Space Academy feel to it. You know, like a... Uh-huh. I think it's also one of those films, you know, like the first time I watched it, actually, I tried to watch it a few times when I was younger, and I fell yeah. asleep every single time. Yeah, and it is. A, it's a very slow-paced movie. I mean, it's not not faster, flashier or anything like that. 
No, it's not. And I think that when it first came out, like a lot of people hated it. <laughs> well, they, well, they couldn't understand it. Right. I think that's what the issue was, um, that they didn't understand what Kubrick was trying to do. I think some films like these, you kind of need a background guide before you go in. Yeah, so yeah. Right. I mean, on a quick note, I mean, considering when it was made in 68 and what the current contemporary state of science fiction movies were, it was so unlike anything else. Never mind that it was dealing with three distinct phases, you know, the dawn of man, the, the space exploration, then you had the, the Stargate sequence. And just take into that most movies were arranged, how their stories were told. Um, it was unlike any story that had been since then. I just found it fascinating. I still do. I, I am in awe of how only the hairstyles tell you that it was made in the late 60s. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I'm going to get in trouble here, but the, the patriarchal place of women, because women were stewardesses or serving you your tray table at, on the moon shuttle or something like that, there were not pilots, they weren't engineers, they weren't in any kind of exploratory form, and that, that was a little indicative of the mid-60s, too, so. Definitely. Um, yeah, I agree. It, you start looking at older films, and there is no leadership of women, because they right. they do have more of a subservient quality. of. You're right, you see that in, in older films, and I think that's why, you know, when they started coming out with things like the bionic woman and um, even like Charlie's angels and Nancy drew and all of that. It really appealed to girls because that was kind of the first time that you were seeing women in such powerful positions. Right. Uh, even though, you know, I mean, they were all sex symbols and all of that. Right. Um, and it was still a, a form of representation. Right. Right. And so slowly we've come forward, you know, and then you have like Captain Kate Mulgrew, um, who was in um, Star Trek. Star Trek Voyager. Uh, Voyager, yeah. And, you know, she was the captain. And it's like, as you go through the decades, you start seeing more and more of that. So you're right. Um, when you don't see that, you know, it's an older film. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Did you know that that computer, Hal, is named after IBM. It's just one letter one letter yep. of, of every yep. letter. Because IBM actually objected because of the personality, the, what the, the computer was going to actually end up doing, you know, killing people mm -hmm. in the movie. The, the, uh, IBM did not want to be associated with that. So that was a compromise from Kubrick and that they got the, the letters one up there instead of IBM, it was HAL. I kind of like the sound of that a lot better. I think it probably in the end it worked out a whole lot better for him. Oh yeah, yeah. I've got so many to choose from in my personal collection. Uh, Citizen Kane is also an awesome movie. I mean, when you consider how young actually Orson Welles was at the time, and not only through the use of makeup that they make him aged within the movie, but just that he had the huspa <laughs> to make that kind of movie at his age and largely poke fun at William Randolph Hearst 
it's just amazing to me to think that when I watch it now, it's one thing, but to consider the time it was released, it's just, it's, it's, it's breathtaking. You know what's amazing about that? Well, first of all, you know, they say it is considered the greatest film ever made by critics. Um, is that film is about 80 years old now. Actually, yeah. it's 80, 81 years old. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> and it's still relevant. I mean, I think it's got something like a nine point something rating on out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. I would believe that. Just the pure ambition that went along with Orson Welles to write the story and direct the movie and act in it throughout a great many different um, ages. He was a relatively young man at like, I think, 25 or 26 years old. Here, this kid back in the early 40s making a story that was almost lampooning William Randolph Hearst, did everything but to name him by name and poke fun, well... Not not in poking fun like you and I think of poking fun, but like making almost like a satire of William Randolph Hearst's life and Marion Davies as well. Yeah, he was kind of a prodigy, really. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he cut his chops in radio, um, especially with that War of the Worlds story. Which, the War of the Worlds we broadcast, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> everybody thought that was real. And then um, he was amazing on stage in theater. So he had all of that storytelling ability, his acting ability, understanding the the process of getting a story across to an audience. And then he just went from that right into film. And this was uh-huh. his first film. I think also the studios just gave him... Gave him a lot of money, first of all, just this ridiculous budget for the film. Just told him, you know, he was the the director, the producer, the actor in there. I mean, he had full control over what was being done there. And this was his vision. So it's it's pretty amazing. And, and he wrote, yeah, like you said, he did write a lot of it. I think it helped, too, that... Hearst got so angry about this film. Oh, yeah. You know, there was all of the drama that was being played out across all of the papers, especially for somebody who owned a paper that was basically the Inquirer. I mean, it was just scandalous news. I'll stay, yeah. (laughs) And then here's this big scandal, and he's rather upset about it. And I think. That was really gratifying to the public to see that. Uh huh. Um, and then that one also had a lot of really interesting film techniques. Used. Well, yeah, things like forced perspective and uh, unusual lighting. And right. It just it looked uh, aesthetically different from a lot of films of this time. Yeah, and it was all mostly told in backflash too. Right. Which was different than anything that had been put out there. I think, you know, it was hitting so many different aspects of human folly. And to me, my biggest takeaway is that it was kind of a a metaphor for making relationships with people more important than those with objects. His life seems so futile in the end. It seems so 
worthless because those connections weren't there. Right. Despite him buying everything he could get his hands on, yeah. all, all the material wealth that he surrounded himself with didn't mean as much as his sled did. Right. I mean, it's just a really sad commentary. And I mean, it's also a commentary to parents in a way because it was kind of his parents' decision to send him away with somebody who was not right. going to be so loving to him, right? But just just concerned with the management of his wealth. Yeah, that's another really good film. And it is. It's beautifully shot. And even though it's in black and white, it's just amazing. Um. Uh, another movie that's not a science fiction movie, but it's certainly mid-century, um, was North by Northwest with, um, Cary Grant and, uh, even Marie Saint. Um. Yeah, that's a good film. It's a, a representation of what life was like in the late 1950s, and it itself had some pretty revolutionary techniques for special effects, and... I can imagine being in a theater in 58 or 59 when it came out and being blown away by the like the chase across the face of Mount Rushmore. The mid-century aesthetic in some of the interiors, although there was a fair amount of, of traditional interiors as well. Um, Cary Grant, what can you say about Cary Grant in his gray suit? I mean... <laughs> yeah. He... He is so perfect for that part and just a great actor overall. And he's so well known. I think the film itself is well known and he's also so well represented by that chase scene with the crop duster. Yes. Him across the cornfield. And that's a nail biter. I mean, that's another one where you can imagine the audience of 1959 just, you know, sitting on the edge of their seats being, Oh my God! Why? Who would ever think to use a, an airplane as a weapon? Right. <laughs> that was brilliant, and that's another one that's noted for many great film moments as well. So it's, it's got kind of a, a timeless quality to it, and I think really all three of these films are sophisticated. They've got that timeless quality. They never get old. There's always something new to see in them, something appreciable. They're really well-told stories. I mean, they're they're yes. very high quality, amazing directors on all three of them and that really knew what they were doing or really knew what they wanted to portray in the end. I mean, there was definitely a method to their madness. And then all of them, I think, have revolutionary techniques for the time period that they were that they were shot in. Most assuredly, even to the point of, of having a matte painting accentuated existing structure for the house that was in the, the hills, kind of back and behind uh, Mount Rushmore. That didn't exist in reality. They had to cobble together something together with matte paintings to get the desired look of that house, that cantilevered deck thing that they had in that mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, they did that with a lot of other a lot of the scenes, you know, even that crop duster scene, they did some shot out here in California. They had to plant a cornfield where that field was in Idaho just to be able to shoot there. And then they also had a miniature in the studio of the plane and the road and the truck. And, you know, another thing, actually, now that I'm talking about that, that all three of these films have 
is a lack of extras. They're very streamlined and focused on the necessary characters. You don't see all of these extraneous people walking through with kind of meaningless connection to the rest of the film. Yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah. I'm just going to change the subject a bit here to your traveling and wandering across America. Sure. You are also a traveler and a wanderer and clearly a lover of the American landscape. Where Mm -hmm. do you get your sense of adventure and wandering from? And what are some of your favorite places? Well, let me tell you, the most recent addition to that list of favorite places to go is Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I recently visited Eureka Springs on a road trip. Um, to visit some other friends in different places, but everybody I know had told me about what a wonderful place Eureka Springs is, and I had to go see it for myself. It's literally built on the side of a hill. It's almost quaint. There's a lot of old shops and hotels and things like that downtown, which have been repurposed. It's in the mountains. It's clear air and pine trees and it's also got an urban sense to it as well and it's very um live and let live (laughs) i i happen to be there on that tuesday and there's a bunch of partying going on and the hotel i was at actually had an on-site bar and restaurant and so i went and had dinner in it that day and it just seems like while saying that anything goes in eureka springs is probably too strong um the tolerance level of different lifestyles is very much in evidence there. And it's a wonderful place to be where you can be yourself. Yeah. Arkansonians were the loveliest people I'd ever met. They were so wonderful. I remember I traveled to Arkansas in the late nineties and the hotel that we were at did not have an elevator. And, you know, we went for like a week. I had packed for like six months and so my <laughs> my suitcase weighed about that much. And there was a man walking up the stairs and he said, let me help you with that. And I go, oh, no, it's like really heavy. And he says, oh, honey, I got it. Don't worry about it. And I go, no, it's really heavy. And he's like, I think I can handle it. And I gave it to him. He was struggling. <laughs> he was struggling to get it up all of these stairs. I was very embarrassed. When he finally got up to the top, I said, I'm really sorry. It's super heavy. And he goes, honey, you were kidding. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was <laughs> it was stuff like that that just regularly happened. And I like to think that America and really the world is so much kinder than the media makes it out to be. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. The majority of the people that I've run into have been lovely. Yeah. And when you get down on the ground, and I hate to use the tropes that are popular these days, but when you're down in pliable country, (laughs) what Mm -hmm. the media refers to as the middle of the country of the heartland, you get people and places for what they really are. That's not, from an airplane view. And you, you also might run into some fellow travelers that are out exploring like you are too. And that, that's kind of magical when you think about it. Yeah, a lot of good stories to share. That's always a lot of fun. Yeah. Where do you think you get your sense of adventure and travel from? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. Um, 
we, we didn't travel as kids very much with our parents. Um, there was one family vacation that I remember, but it was not an annual event. Like we had to go someplace on vacation all the time. And so maybe I'm compensating in the other direction by exploring. I tend to do it all by car, and uh, maybe that's part of it, too, because I love to drive and not really be on a set schedule or anything like that, carry as much stuff as I want to and stuff that I couldn't take on an airplane. And so, yeah, when you're down on the ground, seeing the, the people for what they really are and the places they live, um, it gives you a better sense of what this country is really about. Yeah. You know, when you're saying that you like to drive, you like to drive. I <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you plan trips, and you know the next thing I see is you're at White Sands in New Mexico, or mm-hmm. your um, military bases, or you know military installations that you've gone to. You'll all of a sudden be letting me know that you're going to be coming into town, which is always wonderful. Yeah. But I mean, that's a lot of driving. Well, I mean, like my big road trip in 2019 was across the desert to San Diego and then to Long Beach. And then that was the trip that I'd gone up and seen my, I guess, my second cousin, Marilyn. But, you know, you you base your some parts of your trip based on what you want to see or who you want to see. And then our smartphones are wonderful devices to explore stuff along the way. Yeah, there's a lot that you can find. When Cameron was up in DuPont, Washington, I had a whole day where I wasn't going to see him until that evening. So I ended up in a little town called Renton. I didn't even know where I was. And I pulled out my phone and it said, Jimi Hendrix's graveside. (laughs) And I was like, wait, what? So I visited his graveside. (laughs) Yeah. Example, the first time I went in the desert with my Cadillac in 2018, the final destination that I drove out for was to see the opening of the Trinity site where we uh, blew up our first atomic bomb in 1945. But just going over some of the roads that I was going to be on and zooming down into them with uh, Google Maps, you can find some stuff to look at. You can find some stuff to visit. The La Ventana Natural Arch, which is not publicized. It's just a side of the road rest stop with trails up to where their arch is. Yeah, we live in a really great time to explore. Yes. Yeah, while you're you're relatively young, have the funds to do it. Yes. Well, it's never as cheap as it is now, right? Unless Mm -hmm. unless the world recession comes and wipes us all out. Nothing's ever cheaper in the future. It's always cheaper now. That's true. This morning, I got... A little text from Google letting me know that a trip I had been planning had a price change. So I went to check it out and it had gone up $300. Yeah, that's quite a jump. Yeah. Yeah. So I may not be taking that trip after all. (laughs) But I'm also thinking of people that are about our age. Travel now while you're able, while you can afford it, instead of waiting until you're old and you can't afford it or can't afford it easily or not have as good a physical time as you could when you were younger, like taking a hike or um, zip lining or, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Um, it's always easier when you're younger, just in a relative sense. Yeah. I agree with that assessment, especially as I'm recovering from a knee injury. Yeah. 
you know, it's your knee, my brain. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think you're having a better recovery with your brain than I am with my knee, although it is actually starting to feel a bit better. So I'm I'm very helpful in that regard. And, you know, I don't think this is a permanent thing anyway, but temporarily all of the things in this short amount of time that I've had this injury that I've had to cancel or say no to Mm -hmm. really have made me think about what you just said, you know, just, taking advantage of the opportunities while you're healthy and while you can do these things and really fully immerse yourself into them and enjoy them. Absolutely true. Do you have any tips for photographing the heart of a location or providing that really vivid story in a snapshot that you just have a knack for? Well, There are two ways that I go about it. First of all, I will take an overall big picture of an area, and then I'll walk in further into it and see if there's any details to be photographed, such as a fountain or a square or a park or doors into a hotel or something like that. It'll occur to you as you're exploring, but you start with the big picture of an overview, and then you you drill in on some of the details that you find um, aesthetically pleasing. Or just interesting. It don't necessarily have to be pretty either, because that's also part of our country. Is some of the stuff was not new or um, particularly pretty, but it's what it is, and it's of historical value. I don't go into any place with a preset of how to photograph, what to photograph, and what I'm going to look at. I just kind of walk down the street and take pictures of things that appeal to me. And the beautiful thing about digital is that you can take as many pictures as your batteries will allow you to, as opposed to film cameras that we used to have. And you're always conscious about not wasting any film. So I think the transition to digital photography has increased that wonder and wonder sense that you have by looking at things and knowing that you can take uh, a lot of pictures and only see the good ones. (laughs) Right. I really like the ability of taking 20 pictures of something and then choosing the one good one and being able to discard the rest without worrying about it. Yeah. Do you use any special equipment or are you doing it all on your phone? No, I I generally take my Nikon D5500 with me, although photographers will tell you the best camera is the one you reach for the most often. And I have had a learning curve or more appropriately a de-learning curve when it comes to I don't have to use a Nikon all the time. I've got a pretty darn good snapshot type camera in my phone. And if I don't have to carry a separate bag or occupy one of my hands with carrying a camera, I'm going to use the most easy, convenient one to use. And that oftentimes now is my phone. I remember um, when I went up to Reno to visit Mickey, it was the first time that I'd used my phone exclusively rather than taking the Nikon with me. Less to carry on the plane, less to lose, less to drop. We have become accustomed to the technology that we can carry around in our pocket. Yeah, I reach for my phone a lot. And in fact, when I had to replace my last phone, the research that I did was which phone takes the best pictures. There's basic things that I do on my phone, but I wanted a camera that could also be a phone, not a phone that had camera capabilities. (laughs) It makes total sense. Yeah. 
I want to bring in some background for the audience here. Okay. We met in like Thanksgiving of 89 or 90 at your parents' home mm-hmm. when they live on Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. On Dartmouth, right. Yeah. And I was working in healthcare with AIDS patients at the time, and you had not yet been diagnosed with HIV. Um, And then, you know, life goes on. I went on, had kids, you went on, did your thing. And in 2012, we were sitting at a table talking, and I don't remember exactly what you were going to tell me, because the only thing I remember was you saying you do know about my diagnosis, right? And I said, no, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to tell me he has cancer. And you said, well, I'm HIV positive. And I almost burst into tears. And you just calmly looked at me like, why are you getting so emotional? (laughs) And you said, all I do is take a pill. And that's it. My life is just fine. And, um, It was, and it continues to be right up there with some of the most welcome news that I've ever heard in my life. Um, I realized early on that if I focused on who I got it from or where I got it from, I would drive myself crazy. But I have this thing thrown down in front of me that is now a part of my life. I can't get rid of it. Medical technology is not that we can stave it off. And so it's, in effect, right now, unchangeable. There's no coulda, woulda, shoulda. There's just, you know, what you have in front of you and the path forward. And that's that's the probably the biggest piece of advice that I can offer is to always look forward. Um, I realize that in my journey with HIV, I am extremely lucky. I don't discount what you have said. It just it makes it sound more cavalier than I actually approach it with because the reason that people still get infected is because some of them, I shouldn't shouldn't print with a broad brush, I I will say some of them still have that cavalier attitude that, oh, if it happens, I can just take a pill. Um, When there's no guarantee that you'll be able to tolerate that pill or not have any side effects from that pill or have to take some other pill to counteract the side effects of that pill. So, yeah, with something that is treated with antiretrovirals and protease inhibitors and all this other stuff, you might get lucky, as I have, and and have the drugs work for you. In fact, I'm really tolerant about most of my medications. But, yeah, always look forward. And if the disease does not stop you from doing anything, I mean, don't use it as excuse to not do something. This is going to sound cavalier of me, but just live your life. Yeah. And I agree. You know, we, we can allow so many different things to stop us. And definitely something so life-changing as having a positive HIV diagnosis. Well, while realizing that a lot of people in the, you, know, you had a front row seat to this in your job, but... Mm-hmm. You also know that a lot of people did not have that opportunity to live their lives. No, they didn't. And I have to echo what you just said about the tolerance, because there are a lot of medications that people can't tolerate. There was a time in my life where I was more focused on my HIV disease than I was not. Um, There came a time about 12... 13 years into it, when I finally kind of came to the realization that it was not going to kill me, 
I was going to die of regular old man stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously I took that to an extreme and I came down with a brain tumor, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, don't let HIV or cancer or any of the myriad of diseases that we face as we get older control your life. I am Ken that happens to have HIV. I'm not an HIV patient named Ken. It's a fine difference, but it makes a, a difference about how you perceive it. Yeah, it's an illness I mean, that happens in your life, but it's not the illness that's going to dictate everything that you do. Correct. I don't, don't like to toot my own horn here, but of course, <laughs> as I display symptoms or signs of having brain surgery about three months ago, my basal nerve hasn't woken up yet. Please toot it, Robo-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to, to recover from my surgeries faster than, than average. Although I will say there, there was a time when they first got me out of bed after my back surgery that I thought I was going to collapse because I was so afraid of how much pain there would be or discomfort or a new feeling or something like that. I will say it's remarkable looking back now um, that you build up a tolerance for discomfort and pain and you do it for a number of years and you learn to live with it. And so you don't know what life was like without it. And then one magical day, it's, it's removed. <laughs> and not only do you mentally are not prepared for there not to be any pain, but your body is not prepared for that as well, because your body has some instincts and some automatic reflexes and responses and things like that. But, you know, it does not know that you're having surgery because you're going to fix this, for example. And then when the discomfort and the pain or the tightness or whatever is gone, all of a sudden, like in magic and in an instant, um, it kind of freaks you out a little bit, but you get used to it. <laughs> you get used to what it feels like yeah. to feel good. Mm -hmm. um, and so speaking of those surgeries, a few short mm -hmm. months ago, you were preparing for another back surgery. Your gait was off. Your balance was off a little bit. And yeah. when the MRI scan came back, with the real cause, which was an acoustic neuroma, mm -hmm. it, it was kind of shocking. It was very shocking. Um, I got the news while I was at work and told my boss that this is what's happened. I need to go on leave so I can be available for any time the doctor needs to see me. Never mind the stress of thinking, I've got a brain tumor. It took a it took a few days for me to come be comfortable with that and make I have a brain tumor. And kind of in the same way, thirty years ago when I was diagnosed with HIV positive, um, there was a certain realization that came to me in a short amount of time that okay, I have HIV, what's next? With this brain tumor, it's like it came out of left field. It it makes sense in hindsight. But it really threw me for an emotional loop because here I was on the cusp of actually turning 30 years past diagnosis and to be thrown down the gauntlet with having a brain tumor. I very quickly realized or came to the verbal acknowledgement that 
<laughs> I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said before, um, I'm pretty much normal doing normal activities, except my right eye won't focus because the right side of my face is still asleep. But I can drive, I can clean house, I can cook, I can chop with sharp objects. <laughs> mm-hmm. The facial nerve being asleep has also altered your speech pattern. Oh, most definitely. What exactly is is an acoustic neuroma? It's an accumulation of, and I can't pronounce this word very good right now, but it's accumulation of excess Schwanna cells. And we all have Schwanna cells in our cerebellum area, but for whatever reason, they all went to the right side of my cerebellum and created their own little organism, so to speak. Left untreated for long enough, it will actually debilitate you much, much worse than the symptoms that I was displaying. The classic two symptoms of the acoustic neuroma are lack of hearing in one side or the other, depending on what side of the cerebellum that tumor is on. In my case, it was the right. And balance issues, not to the point of staggering very much, but there were times where I couldn't pick up my feet or I would have difficulty changing direction or there were times where I stumbled. And, you know, well, maybe this is what it feels like to get old. Um <laughs> Or being 30 years HIV positive or, or taking a, a particular drug for 10 or 12 years of a clip. You know, maybe this was just mm-hmm. the way it was. But it's been found, it's been addressed, and I am in the recovery phase right now. Yeah, and you started recovering pretty quickly because I think you were out of the hospital just a couple of days and we talked and you said you were going to take a walk around the block. And I was I was just really impressed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just went, I took that 10-day road trip, visited uh, Atlanta, Georgia, rural western North Carolina. I got a friend up there, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, to visit a friend that had some surgeries about the time that I was having my brain tumor taken out. And so we always check on each other and make sure we're doing okay. We Now I went off on a tangent. What was your question? <laughs> yeah, just, you know, how, how oh. it's changed your life. And it doesn't seem like it's changed it to a huge degree. But I also wonder if a lot of that is just your spirit, you know, your whole philosophy of always looking forward. Um, I would say that's a pretty accurate assessment. Although, don't get me wrong, there are some profound changes that have happened because of this brain surgery. Um, I get told that it's, it's a temporary thing, that they can't provide me any schedule um, or a, time, a definite time frame that says your face will wake up by now. I have been referred to a plastic surgeon to fix my face. I told him, no, not yet, because my fear was, okay, let's say you do this procedure and that procedure, and then my face wakes up. Are you going to have to redo it? He said, yes. I was like, I've had enough surgery for the time being. We're going to wait this out. So in one sense, this is like being in a giant holding pattern right now while this thing tries to wake up. Um, you know that having talked to me over the last couple of months, you know my speech is better than it used to be. 
but obviously I do not sound like my usual self. Right. So there, there is some progress, but it, you know, seems awfully slow in coming sometimes. But yeah, um, I do what I'm able to do. Uh, here it is, the springtime in Texas. <laughs> um, I'm going to have a lawn to mow. I fully anticipated being able to push a mower, but I was just walking um, in my neighborhood and saw the trees are starting to bud now. So it'll be soon when everything starts to turn green. Yeah, definitely. And you guys get way more weather than we do over here. Yeah, um, that's true. Although it has been a little topsy-turvy as well, but definitely no tornadoes over here. No, not yet anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifies me. You know, I always hear people in other parts of the country going, I would never move to California because there's earthquakes there. And I'm like, we get maybe three earthquakes a year that we can actually feel, you know, you guys Uh get tornadoes all the time. All the time. (laughs) Yep. So let's talk about cooking. (laughs) (laughs) I literally think that you are the male analog of Julia Childs. Where did, (laughs) where did you get your love of cooking from? To a certain degree, I got it from my mom, but frankly, she was not very adventurous in what she would prepare. I'm great at finding recipes that I think will taste good. I'll make them one time per the recipe, and then I will make adjustments. And that seems to work for me. I mean, with the internet, YouTube especially, but it not only teaches you recipes, but it'll teach you a technique. You can get all kinds of technique videos and things like that, reproduce whatever technique or method to demonstrate Yeah, I'm looking at what you've made recently, which is the shepherd's mm-hmm. pie that is right. just beautiful. Uh, you made some chili, mm-hmm. coffee cake. That yes. looks delicious, cinnamony, and I bet your house smelled just fantastic. Um, you know what it really smelled fantastic was right after my surgery for Christmas, because the surgery happened on 16 December. Um, I got a wild hair and decided I would try gingerbread. I, I couldn't drive yet. I made my roommate go get uh, me a bottle of molasses and honey and ginger and all this other stuff so I could come home and, and attempt to make gingerbread. And, oh, my God, the smell in the house was like something I could probably bottle and sell and make money. It was so good. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, everything you do, you are a fantastic cook. And I do remember your mom really loved to put on dinner parties. I mean, the holidays were so big for her. She wanted everything to look perfect. She wanted a huge table full of people with a cornucopia of food in the middle. And so I do remember that. And she liked to sit at the piano and play songs for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mom's house and food. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what do you think most contributed to, you know, your zest for life through all of these major events? Um, curiosity is at the heart of it. To wonder how and why the world works, that whatever you, you know, you don't understand, you know, in this age that we live in right now, all those answers are many, many, many of those answers are available. So at the heart of it, it is a certain form of curiosity to know how things work. Yeah, curiosity is 
huge at helping you push the limits. Yes. Um, If you had one piece of advice to give the world, what would it be? Don't take yourself seriously or as seriously as you do already. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, seriously though, um, don't do what I do, for example, don't do what I do in the kitchen to impress other people or, or to come out with a perfect coffee cake, for example. It's nice to hear the, how nice your cooking is from somebody else, but until you try it for yourself and go, hey, they're, they're onto something here, um, it's kind of like an even mix between relying on somebody else's opinion and, and your own opinion of your, your cooking. But um, don't do it just because you're trying to get that perfect opinion. Do it because you're, you're going to learn from your experience and make adjustments from there on out. Yeah. Do things because you love to do them, not because you hope somebody else will love that you can do Right. Them. Right. Yeah. I like that. So is there anything else that you want to add? What have we not talked about? Well, we haven't talked about you, but you're the host of the podcast, so I guess that's a given. (laughs) You have been a a tremendous friend and a presence in my life, and for that, I thank you. Oh, thank you. I love you. I I love you too, um, honey. Thank you. You know, I remember when, can we talk about the marriage? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I remember when you and Jay invited me out for your wedding and I thought I definitely want to go to this wedding and I will not miss it. And I was sitting at the table talking with Nicole, your niece, and you walked over and said, I have a surprise for you girls. And we got to give you away. And it was so (laughs) special. It, it, I'm getting emotional over it right now. Oh, it was. It was a nice, it was a great day. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were planning for me to come out and visit in December, Mm -hmm. and then you had this surgery, so we weren't able to do that, which was a bummer, but hopefully we'll be able to to get together this year. I know what I'm going to (laughs) cook. What are you going to cook? Shepherd's pie, of course. Yes. Yes, that'll be, <laughs> that'll be wonderful. I hope that you decorate your life with what nurtures your soul. Follow your sense of wander to beautiful places and spend time with the people that brighten your life and pique your curiosity. Also, please tell me about your favorite films. And if your car has a name, I want to hear about it. I want to know what the story is behind that. I love hearing from you. So keep sending me your questions and suggestions. And also, please take a second to rate this episode because your rating will help move the podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I love my friends and I'm so excited for the upcoming In the Company of Friends talks. Also, please be sure to stay through to the end for some bloopers And also follow me on the socials and the dot com where I post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and lots more. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com, all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E W L E. 
podcast. I am still Annan, the Queen Trell. And until next time, stay curious and always move forward. I wish you passion, grace, adventure, elegance, and beauty. So we're going to do this fun talk. I think it's going to be great. Um, I've been really looking forward to it. I know it will be. Oh, good Lord. There's Marvin Morrison. <laughs> that's, my, that's my notification, Tom. I'm going to turn it off. Hold on. Pretty mellifluous, if, uh, if that sounds like the right word, where, you know, it's... If, it, if I'm able, capable of being mellifluous. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You definitely okay. are. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You are basically Robo Man. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>